Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we will be asking Christina Bicchieri whether it is possible to change social norms. There's an unwritten rule in North Dakota. The person who yells first in an argument loses. Doesn't matter who is right or who is wrong, or even how serious the complaint is. If you raise your voice, you're the bad guy. It took me a long time to learn this, and I can think of a few people who clearly hate me because they did something crappy and I shouted in anger. It wasn't like this where I grew up. In New York City, people yell all the time. They yell at family, at friends, at strangers, all yell back, and most of the time, everyone involved takes a few minutes to get over it, and then everything's fine again. I'm not saying this is the healthiest way of dealing with one another, but it does provide a useful purpose. It's a way of expressing pent-up emotions and channeling hostility away from physical violence. In a city with 8.6 million people, disarming anger is a very, very good thing. The permission to be loud is as much a manifestation of culture as it is geography. The largest waves of immigration to New York have been from emotionally expressive traditions. Italian and Irish Catholics, Jews, folks from the Caribbean islands, and Russians. These are all ethnicities that wear their emotions on their sleeves. In contrast, the Scandinavians that settled in North Dakota are a famously stoic people who are often very hard to read. There's an old joke that I'm sure I've told you on the show before. Did you hear about the Norwegian parents who loved their son so much they almost told him? If Ingmar Bergman had ever been exposed to a telenovela, I think his head would have exploded from a lifetime of repression. Obviously, I'm dealing with generalizations here. There are quiet New Yorkers just as there are boisterous North Dakotans. But what's important is that we can both identify what socially normal means and articulate expectations at the same time. Culture is both descriptive and prescriptive. We can often predict how groups will act and anticipate the negative consequences for those who rebel. The longer I live in North Dakota, the more I'm able to get a sense of what the rules are and the easier it is to get along with the locals. But that too has involved a lot of trial and error. People around here don't tell you how to act. They just grow cold when they disapprove. We all have to figure out what we've done wrong on our own. We have to infer how we've transgressed. These observations throw the American narrative on its head. We like to talk about individual freedom and the choices people have to act and be who they want. But this is perversely simplistic. Social norms are collective, not a product of atomistic personal preferences. Sure, any of us are free to yell at whomever we want, but if we do, we have to live with the consequences. We are all subject, in some sense, to what John Stuart Mill calls the tyranny of the majority. Collective social power is amorphous and fluid, but it is also powerfully effective. It can be resisted. It can't necessarily be controlled. On this episode of Why, we're going to look at social norms, ask how they are formed, identified, and how they're changed. From preventing child marriage to challenging bigotry, we have every reason to want to push past established behaviors that undermine our moral convictions. 
But doing that also involves understanding why these behaviors exist. In other words, we aren't just concerned with actions. We have to consider justifications and expectations as well. And so I returned to the yelling. Moving from New York to North Dakota changed me in many ways. I most certainly do shout at others less than I used to. I'm also more patient, even more passive. At the same time, I'm also angrier in some important ways and feel more invisible, isolated, and disregarded. There are times when the stillness of North Dakota feels more like being backed into a corner than it does the peaceful welcoming that Min Dakota Nice is supposed to be. By the way, this isn't just me. I know quite a few North Dakotans who moved to New York. They're more aggressive than they were and more assertive. Some of them would have a hard time coming back. Most of them don't want to. Is the New York way of being better than the North Dakotan? Probably not. Is one more appropriate to its respective context than the other? Almost certainly. So we're left with the philosophical question that lies at the core of it all. If all we're doing is trying to fit in, how do we change these practices that outlive their usefulness? If norms mold the individual, is it possible for the individual to mold the norm? To put all of this another way, can we change culture by force of will? If we can, is that too much power for one person to have? If we can't, can we claim to be free at all? And now our guest. Christina Bicchieri is the Sarah Jane Patterson Harvey Professor of Social Thought and Comparative Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania and Director of the Philosophy, Politics, and Economics Program. She's the author of several books, including most recently Norms in the Wild. Christina, welcome to Why. Thank you. If you'd like to comment on the show, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at, at Y Radio Show, one word, or email us at askyundy.edu. You can listen to all of our previous episodes for free and find information about our future shows at yradioshow.org. So, Christina, actually, just the other day, I saw a cartoon on the internet with two women talking. The first one says to the other, Ugh, why can't you be normal? And the other one retorts, Well, why can't you be interesting? Is that what we're going to talk about today? When we ask about changing norms, yeah. are we talking about the pressure to fit in? Also, uh, among other things, uh, in your previous description of norms, uh, you highlight some very important uh, issues about norm. First of all, social norms are typically implicit rules, are not written down like legal rules are not, people are not describing them to us unless we are children and our parents tell, well, you should behave this way or, or this other way. So uh, these are implicit rules. So when you go to North Dakota, to keep with your example, you know, at the beginning, uh, you don't realize immediately, and nobody is going to tell you that uh, the expectation, because rules are basically also uh, you know, sets of expectations. You know, people expect you to behave in a certain way. And uh, on the other hand, once you know the rule, you expect other people, you know, to follow the rule. And in a social norm context, uh, this is not just an expectation of behavior, but there is also a judgment about, well, if you don't behave that way, you know, there is a negative judgment attached to that. 
And so you go to North Dakota to stay with your example, and uh, you start yelling. And, <laughs> you know, uh, people may be, may be at the beginning nice with you because they say, oh, he comes from New York, of course. <laughs> you know, he doesn't know how to behave. But if you continue behaving that way, uh, you know, they won't be that charitable to you and probably will judge very neg negative way. And basically, you know, by uh, making mistake, by trials, uh, you will learn what the rule is and you will conform. Why will you conform? Because if you don't, again, this is typical of a social norm, there will be some negative judgment uh, accompanied, accompanying your behavior. So you don't want to be judged negatively. Uh, you don't want to suffer you know, negative sanction, bad consequences. And so you will conform and try not to yell at people when you are in an argument. All right. This 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 strikes me um, as one of the oldest questions in philosophy. When when Plato is writing Socrates in the Apology 2,500 years ago, Socrates starts off by saying, I don't know how to talk in a court of law. If I was a foreigner, you'd give me a lot of latitude. You'd let me make mistakes. But because I'm not, because you think I'm like you, you're going to hold me uh, more accountable for things and expect me to do things I don't know how to do. Is, yes. is there more yes. judgment on people who we find – uh, closer to us, right? Because right now in American politics, we're being very critical of, of the foreigner, of the immigrant, of the refugee. But what you seem to be suggesting is that in terms of these implicit judgments, it's the people who are the closest to us that are going to receive the harshest judgments. Yes. Uh, there is, uh, you know, we give uh, a certain uh, uh, slack, if you will, uh, to people that uh, we know you know, are not in line with our culture. They are foreigners. Uh, you know, this is not forever slack. But, uh, you know, at the beginning, uh, you can be sort of nicer because you think, well, they are not part of our culture. They don't understand and so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, um, this is one thing. So we are harsher, if you will, with people that belong to our network, that are part of our group, because they should know the rules and they should obey the rules. There is a strong expectation there. But uh, the interesting thing, uh, what's happening now, I mean, I come from Europe and, uh, you know, of course, uh, I am also an American citizen. I live in the U.S. And I see this happening uh, here with uh, the... Uh, Latin American immigration and in Europe with the immigration from Africa, um, there is uh, a we versus them, uh, you know, sense. So there is an in-group, what we call in-group, out-group problem. And uh, that is, uh, if you're not part of my group, well, I trust you less. I look at you with some suspicion and what I implicitly require you to do if you come to live in my country, this is what's happening all over Europe actually, is, well, you have to adopt our ways very quickly. So there is a lot of backlash, for example, against Muslims and their ways because, you know, of course, there is the issue of terrorism, etc. But it is a deeper thing, I think. And the deeper thing is that you are different. Hey, you have to homologate. 
you have to behave like us if you want, you know, to benefit from, you know, being uh, uh, admitted, being uh, allowed to live with us. So is uh, uh, in a sense at the beginning there may be some slack, but then soon enough uh, the idea is uh, now you behave like us because uh, you are my guest in my house, etc. And there is a lot of animosity which, uh, you know, uh, emerges from this attitude. This is very important. Is, is this a little unfair? And what I mean by this is there seems to be an expectation that outsiders learn the norms very quickly. But one of the lessons we get from your book and from looking at, 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 at how complicated this is and from my own experience in North Dakota in the monologue is these are hard things to learn. So is there is there a appropriate time period to wait? Is there uh, – do we have to be patient or is the expectation that these transformations happen quickly perfectly reasonable? Is not a reasonable expectation. I completely agree with you. And uh, while it is easier for kids or young people, it's much more difficult for older people that, uh, you know, have uh, (laughs) lived in a particular (laughs) way for decades. So it takes time. And uh, it takes time and mostly is, uh, you know, the hope is the young generation will integrate much more easily than the older ones. Uh, And uh, yes, I think it's unfair to expect uh, a sudden rapid change because even the young generation, they have to come to our schools. They have to be educated in our ways. So it's uh, and often this creates conflicts between the young and the old generation of immigrants. We have seen that with several honor killings, where you know I'm very aware of some that happened in Italy, where the young girl wanted went to school in Italy and wanted to live like an Italian girl, and uh, the father. His uh, reference network was the village in Pakistan. And, uh, and so the fact that she wanted to live, uh, you know, out of wedlock with uh, an Italian boy was anathema. And in the end, after warning her many times, uh, they decided to kill her. So, uh, you know, there are certain norms, if you will, certain rules uh, uh, that are quite negative, but I give this example not to say that the rules are negative or not, which of course they are very negative, honor killing, but uh, to tell you that the young generation are those uh, that uh, integrate, they want to change, they want to be part of this different and new culture, and the old generation have really a hard time, you know, to abandon, especially with norms, one thing that I want to stress, with norms, norms uh, require a reference network. So norms are not just related to individuals, but to groups. And the Pakistani man who was, uh, uh, you know, a factory worker in Milan for 25 years, his reference network was the Pakistan village and what happened there, and how people were judging his family there. So when we think of norms, I want to stress this, 
we have to think of a reference network. So going back to your question of fairness and how fast or slowly, you know, people change, I think older people still have a reference network which is not part of the country where they emigrate, whereas young people form new reference networks much, much easier. And so, so, uh, and so, so I think I'm change so, will come there, <laughs> mostly. So, so this phrase reference network, it refers not just to your immediate friends and family, but the people who you look to to sort of Correct. determine what the norms are to, 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 for evaluation. And so it Absolutely. can be uh, the people who you live immediately with, but it can also be the people who you identify with in another country – 3,000 miles Absolutely. Away. And we see this over and over and over again. For example, another good example, since uh, you're interested uh, in Minnesota, in Minnesota, there is a big uh, um, Somali community. Yes. Okay. Yes. And uh, what happens there is that they often send uh, their daughters back to Somalia to get cut. Okay, and who's the reference network? Is uh, uh, you know the the families, uh, the relatives, uh, the friends in Somalia, not in in uh, in Minneapolis. I'm sorry to interrupt just for a second. To but cut, you mean uh, the removal of the clitoris, the, yes, the genital female genital uh, cutting. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, typically, I don't like to use the word mutilation. And okay. UNICEF actually has rejected the word mutilation out of sort of respect, if you will, for these cultural practices, but certainly cutting is very appropriate. And, you know, there is cutting and cutting, but what I want to quote here is the fact, speaking of reference networks, that people, Somali people who live in Minnesota send their daughter back to Somalia to be cut. So the reference network is there not in Minnesota. So the work that you do, you, you have to walk a, a line both as yes. a philosopher who has moral opinions but also an anthropologist who in order to understand the norms, uh, you want to take away that, that moral judgment, not that you don't have it personally, but that understanding how norms work requires a sort of anthropological distance. I agree. Yeah. I completely agree. Uh, of course, uh, I have my personal opinions right. about, uh, you know, right and wrong. and <laughs> uh, But I try always uh, to understand why people behave one way or another. This is an important thing. When uh, uh, international organizations, uh, you know, aim, you know, want to eliminate certain behavior because they think these are dangerous, etc., uh, or inhuman or whatever, you know, the, the issue is um, we want to understand, that's my main job there, what drives people to behave in that particular way. You know, what is the reason? Why do they do that? And uh, all my measures are geared to measure that and to diagnose the behavior because sometimes what you think is a social norm maybe is a deep religious conviction. is a very different story. And uh, intervention would be very different. 
So the problem is uh, to decide which intervention, which policy to enact. You first have to diagnose the behavior. What sort of behavior is it? What drives people to behave one way or another? And this is part, the major part of my work is exactly doing that. So I, I, I want to ask you in another minute of whether you can change your reference network and, 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 and how that and how intervention happens. But as an example, I want to bring up the what you talk about in the book, the the, the campaign of, of Salima. Was it in Ethiopia? Yes. I can't remember. In, in Ethiopia. That, that was in Sudan. About, in Sudan, excuse me. In Sudan, um, what happened with Salima in response to cutting and why was it so successful? Well, first of all, um, you know, most of the people there are Muslim. And uh, um, uh, another interesting thing was that imams, uh, you know, were uh, enlisted in this campaign to explain to people that there is no cutting demand in the Quran. Okay, is not an Islamic rule. This is one thing. But the most important thing was uh, to tell people, look, God made, uh, you know, this girl body intact, untouched, pure, okay? And cutting basically goes against that, okay? Salima means uh, basically pure, whole, untouched, in that culture, you know, uh, the purity of girls is very important. So what they try to do is understanding the importance of purity, turn it around and say, okay, what does it mean to be pure? It means to be untouched, uncut, you know, a full untouched body. And that had a bite. You know, people really like that. Okay, so it was a combination of imams that said, no, there is no cutting demanded by the Quran. So Islamic religion doesn't demand that. And also the idea that uh, actually religion, you know, goes for purity. And uh, cutting, in some sense, breaks down this purity, breaks down this integrity. It had a very, very huge effect. That's very interesting. So, so, so there's a tremendously important philosophical move implicit in this, right? If, if this were happening in the United States, if this discussion were in the United States, people would look at, at the cutting and say, well, first of all, uh, sexual pleasure is incredibly important for women, and so you shouldn't uh, remove their ability. But second, the idea of a pure woman is uh, old-fashioned, <laughs> obscene, anti-feminist, yes. uh, that sort of thing. Correct. But in the Sudan, this context wouldn't work. To, it, it would be too much too fast. And so to, to argue with the idea of purity doesn't make sense. So instead they say, all right, we're going to take your concept, your commitment to purity, and we're going to say by your own standards – the woman who is uncut is more pure than the woman who is cut. And so they choose a particular social norm, a particular behavior to try to change. It's not an unimportant behavior, but it's a singular, I should say, small behavior, but I don't like that word in this context. Um, and, and so part of the trick of changing norms is to look at 
the justifications, the reasons, the expectations, and and not impose too much, but look for an internal perspective. Is that right? Uh, I completely agree. Uh, what you say is, uh, <laughs> you know, very right. Yeah. The problem is that. Uh, uh, our beliefs, okay, think of beliefs uh, about honor, purity, genital cutting, etc., uh, you know, are in a network. It's not that we have beliefs in isolation. And uh, what we do uh, when you want to change some beliefs or some practices, you usually don't want to touch, this is basic psychology, you don't want to touch the core beliefs that people have. Because if you try to touch or, you know, uh, subvert the core belief, people won't listen to you. You know, they will turn against you. They won't trust you. And so the idea is let's respect this core belief uh, that these people have in purity, etc. Yes, they are very different from our beliefs. And that's a, a different culture. And uh, let's see what they infer from the, those core beliefs. And uh, one typical inference is the cutting. And what you show them is, uh, well, it's not really a good inference because the core belief uh, is, uh, you know, that, that there is uh, a better actions, better behavior in support of that belief uh, that has to do, a belief in purity, honor, etc., that has to do with physical integrity. So you leave the core beliefs untouched, but you try to reinterpret what should be inferred from that core belief. And this has been successful. And I think, of course, if you think of America, it would be ridiculous to think of honor <laughs> and, uh, you know, purity and so on and so forth. But you have to immerse yourself in another culture if you want to change a few things and change them in a way that is agreeable and understandable by these people. When we come back, I want to follow up this idea. I want to ask again about the reference networks, and I want to talk a little bit about more about the concept of normal. But I also want to talk about the tension between figuring this stuff up in the laboratory and then figuring it out, as you call it, in the wild. But first, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Christina Bacchieri and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be back right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. You're back with Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussion About Everyday Life. We're talking with Christina Bicchieri about norms and changing norms. And 
I guess today is going to be my focus on North Dakota example because one of the things that I was thinking about was a conversation I have with my students a lot. I, I tease my students. Uh, any good any good professor is going to poke fun at their students uh, collectively, not individually. And one of the things I always tell my students is that they're the worst dressed students that I've ever had. That <laughs> you start with first year students and you see they're all dressed up like they think college students are supposed to be from their television shows from on my age it was you know Beverly Hills 90210 or Dawson's Creek I don't know what anyone watches today but but um, and then after about three or four weeks the first year students start looking like the the, the upper level students they're wearing sweatshirts they're wearing sweatpants they're, they they stop paying attention and no one told them to do this it just happens and so I have these conversations and then a student uh, quite a few years ago who was a double major in, in business and philosophy told me that when she was in the business school they dressed a little better but if you dress up it suggests that you want people to look at you that the goal of dressing down is to not call attention to yourself because calling attention to yourself is bad. So, Christina, telling that story, if I wanted to change the practice of student dress in my class, I could, of course, force them by law to say, well, it's business casual in my class and nothing else. But it would probably be more effective to look at this idea of – what it means to be looked at is—is is that what you're saying? That rather than just look at the behavior, look at the reasons and the justification for you, the behavior. Is that right? Uh, well, it uh, uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, it depends. Uh, uh, in your case, uh, the answer was uh, well, I want uh, um, you know to be in the mix. Uh, I don't want to be, uh, you know sorted out as uh, different, etc., uh, etc. Et I think very often, uh, uh, you know, especially when you have uh, uh, children that, uh, you know, go to school, high school, you know, and uh, university, etc., they tend to want to be like uh, the rest of the crowd, okay? And... Uh, I don't think uh, that uh, it's very conscious, um, you know, the idea, oh, I don't want, uh, you know, uh, to be uh, looked at one way or another. They just want to imitate what other kids do. They want to blend in, okay? And I think it's a very, very basic desire, okay, without any extra you know, justification, if you will. It's very normal. You know, uh, kids want to blend in. You don't want to be different. Now, whether it is because you don't want to attract attention, unwanted attention, or, you know, uh, you think uh, uh, people will look at you differently and maybe cr be critical or not. I mean, uh, people have different motivations, if you will, psychological motivation. But there is a basic drive to be like others, to imitate other behavior. Okay? If you look at high school kids, uh, typically the desire is, uh, well, there is uh, a nice group, uh, there is uh, a group of popular kids and we want right. to be like them <laughs> okay so a lot of people a lot of kids think oh these are the popular kids 
and uh, you know they dress in a particular way we want to dress like them to be accepted or whatnot so there are many different motivation if you will to imitate other people sometimes we imitate people because we think uh, it gives us some information you know about uh, about something so imitation is uh, uh, what we call due to informational influence. Sometimes it's due to normative influence. It depends. But the basic drive to imitate is basically human. So what's the relationship between social norms and normal, right? We use this term normal a lot, often yeah. in a sort of yeah. abstract way. And sometimes you even meet someone who you just want to say – they're a little off. There's something about them. Are, are these variations on the same theme, or the, is, is normal and norm totally different terminology? Okay. Uh, normal means uh, common. You know, normal behavior is usually uh, referred to as common behavior. Common behavior is not necessarily, uh, you know, a social norm. I give you three examples. One is uh, we, when it rains, uh, we usually uh, go out and open an umbrella, okay? And this is very common behavior. And we expect, you know, if you ask me, what do you think people do under the rain? When I say, well, if they have an umbrella, they will use it, okay? And, uh, but does this expectation that I have about other people influence my using or not using an umbrella? No. So normal behavior in that case is basically the idea that when, when it rains, people use umbrella. But this normal behavior in no way influences my behavior, my choice of using an umbrella or not. Another example may be, uh, let's say, traffic, okay? Uh, let's say traffic lights, okay? And uh, normal behavior is to stop at red and go, when green comes up. And here, of course, uh, uh, I do that and I obey these signals because I expect other people to obey them. If I am in a place where I don't expect other people to obey them, hey, I, I am in trouble. I have to spend a lot of time looking around and trying, you know, to be safe. So this is what we call a descriptive norm. So my expectation that other people behave one way or another determines my behavior. You know, I stop a red and go a green because I expect other people to do the same. Then there are social norms that are much, much more, uh, if you will, important and heavy, where uh, think of a norm of fairness, okay? Uh, I may be in a situation where... I uh, believe uh, that everybody behaves, uh, or almost everybody, behaves in a fair way. And let's say fairness in, is interpreted as equality. As an example, it may not be, but let's suppose for you know, the sake of argument that fairness is equality. So we expect people you know, to cut the cake in equal, in equal parts. And it's not just expectation of behavior, but we also believe that everybody else expect everybody to do that. And they think if you don't do that, you're really not nice. Okay. And 
we may want to punish you in some way, to sanction you in some way, and the punishment may be very mild, like gossiping it out you, but it may be much stronger, like uh, ostracizing you. you. We don't want you to be part of our group. Okay, so there are different type of sanctions, very mild or very, very serious. But in a social norm, there are so two kinds of expectation. The expectation that people behave in a particular way and what I call the normative expectation, the collective beliefs that one should behave in that way. And the combination of the two influences behavior. It's not like using an umbrella where my expectation don't influence my behavior. Here, my expectation do influence my behavior, both the expectation about what people do and also the expectation about what people approve or disapprove of. They both influence my behavior. This is a social norm. So, so, so this is an ex- excellent example of, of, of how philosophers think about the world, that, that we take uh, – something that looks like it's one thing and we analyze it in such a way so we can figure out what it is we want to know and and, and, and how we can change certain things, often normatively. You use that word a couple of times. I use it always in the show. It has a moral component. It has an To be normative is to be morally obligatory in some sense. So you started off with this idea of an umbrella, right? And that's just a normal behavior. And if someone doesn't have an umbrella, that's between them and, and, and their clothes getting wet. And we might say, oh, that's weird. Sally doesn't use an umbrella, but it's not a big deal. Descriptive norms, like the traffic lights, we expect everyone else to behave in the same way. And it is at least the- theoretically possible to change this en masse. You mentioned Sweden, Sweden. changing, uh, right, changing yeah. the left and, and, and right, uh, driving from the left side to the right side. There's a Correct. law. There's punishment. There's big campaign. Everyone is expected to do it. But then there's this thing called social norms. And these have both this ec- uh, are based on personal expectations, what people want, what kind of reaction they want, what. Uh, and then there's the normative aspect, which is it's about, in this case, being a good or bad person. And this is incredibly hard to change because even if we might change one individual's ability to cut the cake, the idea of changing a culture's notion of what fair is would yes. be such a monumental effort that, as we know from the history of philosophy, takes thousands and thousands of years, right? <laughs> That's so, true. Right? That's so, true. So, so but not impossible. Not impossible. And it has changed. But, but, but your main philosophical interest is in this last category of social norms and this question, not only just how do you change these social norms, but how do you identify them? How do you measure them? How do you articulate them? Correct. Because... Correct. It takes a tremendous philosophical effort just to be able to offer these three categories that you engaged in. So how do you do that? How do you look at a culture and say, all right, this is custom. Uh, this is just individual idiosyncrasy. No, this is a social norm. This is a yes. thing that is deeply rooted, and this is something that we may want to change. How do you do that? Uh, thanks for the question. This is my main uh, consulting work is based on that. And uh, if I identify, you know, collective behaviors in general, you know, I uh, are based or are not based on uh, social expectations. So first of all, I look and measure 
social. I, let, let me make a parenthesis. I measure something else. I measure people's factual beliefs. So for, let's take child marriage. Okay. People have a lot of factual beliefs, right or wrong, about, uh, uh, you know, that the fact that a young girl will be more fertile than an older girl, that uh, she will be more obedient to the in-laws' family, because in this culture, typically, the girls goes and live with the in-laws, that she will get more attached to the husband, and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of factual beliefs that people have. Again, I'm not saying they are true or false, just what they have. Child marriage is very young here. So, so what age? Child marriage means after immediately after puberty. Okay. Basically. Okay. Okay, very young. So I'm sorry, please continue. You know, when there is child marriage in these places, is like 13 or 14 year old. Okay. okay. So, it's, yeah, it's not 18 or 19. Right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so basically we look at the factual beliefs. We look at what I call personal normative beliefs. So people may have given certain factual beliefs. I may believe uh, that it is uh, right and good Okay, to marry my daughter very young, because another important factual belief in all this culture is that a girl may be subject to rape, okay, may be subject to violence, and therefore marrying her will protect her, okay? And so the factual beliefs are typically always accompanied by some, you know, personal normative beliefs. Okay, I measure all that. Then I measure... The, what I call empirical expectation. What do I mean? I ask people, okay, within your reference network, which I measure, what do you expect? What do you believe other families do? You know, do they marry the, uh, the girl young? Which age? When? How? Etc. And so I measure what they think other people do. Then I measure what I call normative expectation. They know that I have asked everyone their personal normative belief, what they think is right or wrong. And then I ask them, okay, uh, what do you think the majority of the people responded to this question? Okay, and so this is a general question about what they believe other people approve or disapprove of. Very important. Okay, so I measure that too. Once I have all this data, I want to know, this is crucial, whether, especially the social expectation, cause behavior, have an impact on behavior. Now, how do I do that out of the lab <laughs> where I cannot really manipulate expectations? And one way to do that is present people with vignettes. And, for example, if it is a father, the vignette will represent another man uh, another father coming from a very similar village and uh, having to make the decision whether to marry or not to marry his young girl. There is a marriage proposal, and this man has to decide what to do. And what I do, I uh, sort of tweak, modify the expectation. For example, in this village, most people do marry their girl as soon as they reach puberty, but on the other hand, you know, they don't think it's mandatory, okay? Actually, they believe 
that it may be okay to leave the girl, go to, let the girl go to school and marry later. So they do one thing, but they don't disapprove doing something else. And then I asked the person, what do you think this father will do? And a different group of people are asked different questions. Another situation, maybe the situation similar, a father who got a very good marriage offer. But in his case, most people do something different. Most people don't marry the girl at 13, 14, let the girl finish high school. However, you know, they approve of child marriage. <laughs> so I, I show them some incongruent you know, expectation, what people do and what people approve and disapprove of may be different, okay? And then I ask people, okay, what do you think this father will do? And I collect a lot of data. And through the collection of data, I may see, for example, that the expectation about what people in fact do has much more weight than the expectation about what people approve of, disapprove of, if they are incongruent, for example. This gives me a very important door, <laughs> if you will, into change. Because what I see is that it may be enough to change people's expectations about what other people do to change the norm. Okay? And there are various techniques to do that. And uh, as you mentioned at the very beginning, I like soap operas. And right. we can talk about that, if you will. Yeah, I, I, and I, I absolutely do in just one second. So just, just to take a step back. So, so we have this problem, and this problem is that there's what people approve of, but then what people see. So uh, another example that you cite in the book is this one particular community where when asked, 1% of men approved of uh, punishing their wives physically, but 50% yes. of the men actually did it. Why? Because they saw the other men do it. It was expected, and so they engaged in it. So one of the tasks is to show this incongruity, but there's a problem, and the problem is – you can do these Correct. examples in, in a laboratory under controlled conditions, but you consult with UNICEF, you've worked with the United Nations and other groups, and you want to work in the real world, uh, in the wild, as you call it. Uh, and so you have to find other methods to to show this incongruity, and that involves data collection and things like that. And as you just started talking about, one way of doing this, and I love this so much, is soap operas, right? That soap yes. operas is an, are, yes. are an outstanding tool to show – to, to show this incongruity and to move norms. How? Why? Talk to us about soap operas. Okay. Uh, before talking about soap opera, I want to address uh, what you just said before the soap opera, okay. which is what we call pluralistic ignorance. Right, right, right. Okay, which is a, a really widespread phenomenon in all those situations in which people cannot transparently communicate with each other um, what their real preferences are, what they really believe. And there have been a lot of studies done by social psychologists on uh, sort of close communities, like teachers in a school, um, uh, jails, you know, the prison guards in a, in a jail, or... Uh, you know, very specific uh, religious communities, etc. 
And all these communities uh, have certain uh, norms of behavior. And uh, what happens very often when they interview these people, um, they, they will say, oh, you know, think of teachers. My colleagues, uh, uh, you know, uh, clearly uh, support uh, really harsh punishment of students, let's say. I am not in support of that, but, you know, I don't want to be put at a disadvantage going against, uh, you know, the sort of share common rules of behavior, and therefore, you know, I go along with it. So they think, uh, you know, the person think, uh, responding in this way, think, I am a deviant, but, you know, I don't want to show that I am a deviant, and so I behave like everybody else, I will be harsh, etc. The interesting thing <laughs> is that many people are, you know, deviants in pectore, as we say, <laughs> you know, in, the, in their closet, <laughs> uh, but don't dare to communicate that. And this is a typical case of pluralistic ignorance, a bad norm. So being very harsh with students is disliked by most but since they don't have the courage to say, hey, I dislike it, then, of course, the, the norm keeps surviving because everybody thinks that everybody else supports it. And that's the ignorance, right? It's pluralistic ignorance because everyone exactly. is ignorant of everybody else's opinion. And even though people may all have the same opinion, they all wrongfully, they're ignorant about what other people's opinions are. And so the norm continues, the behavior continues out of ignorance. If everyone had just said, oh, no, I'm, a, I'm against cruel punishment of the students. No, I am too. I am too. But I am they too. Will then not. everyone will be fine. But they won't because they won't speak out because they're afraid of being deviant. It's such a wonderful yes, world. Exactly. Word, exactly. And with the kind of analysis and diagnostics I do, I can very easily unearth cases of pluralistic ignorance, where, for example, going back to child marriage, it may be the case that a lot of parents have a hidden personal opinion against child marriage, but they feel, you know, this is the norm, I will be shunned, my family will be ostracized if we don't do that, so let's do that. Okay, so this, uh, this is very interesting because when this is the case, it's much easier to change behavior right. because you inform people of what the common opinion really is. You know, unfortunately, it's not always the case. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so you're, you're, you're ignorant about what your reference network thinks. And so one way of, of, of handling this is to... Uh, reveal the true attitudes within the reference network. Another, and this is a leading question, but another way of doing this is expanding the reference network, and that is where media comes in, right? Because yes, um, I'm going to talk about the media now, right? So, so, so the 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 pluralistic ignorance. We keep going back to this idea of reference network, whether it's the factory worker um, who's originally um, from, I think you said Pakistan, where. Uh, yes. His yeah. mind, his his heart is with the people back in the village. He has to expand Correct. his uh, reference network to the Italians mm -hmm. with whom he lives and works and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but then there are other ways to do this, and that leads us to the media. Okay. The media, you know, have a very big supporter, supporter of well-done soap operas. 
And we have a lot of data, actually, of studies done about the huge, even demographic effects that soap operas have had in India, Africa, Latin America. Typically, the successful soap operas are long-term soap operas, so they last years. This is very important. A second element is the character, the protagonist of the soap opera, is somebody people can easily identify with. It's like them. It goes through the same hurdles, the same problems, the same difficulties. But the interesting thing about these good soap operas is that these characters can change. So the behavior of this character will change. And this allows people to aspire to doing something different. So as I said before, to change a social norm, the first thing that needs to be changed is the expectation about other people's behavior. And one very interesting element of soap operas that is rarely understood, I think, in the literature is that people usually watch the soap opera together and people talk about that with each other. Mm, so there is a very important collective element. Mm. So we watch this episode where people do things that we normally don't do and... Uh, we we talk about that, and uh, we see this behavior suddenly as, oh, it's okay. It's a possible behavior. It's acceptable behavior. People do that. And this really, you know, spurs change. But uh, it, has to, it takes time. It must be a sort of collective absorption of this new behavior, and there must be the possibility to identify with this character. Because if you show, uh, you know, to poor Indians, uh, you know, shows like Dallas, <laughs> they will not identify <laughs> with Dallas. But they will identify, you know, there are stories about, for example, a famous soap opera in which uh, uh, the kids, especially the young girl, want to continue studying and they want to choose their husband. They don't want an arranged marriage. And it's very interesting because this fictitious character received lots of mails from girls saying, I want you to talk to my parents. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm really convinced to do such and such thing and so on and so forth. So they have an effect. And you discuss in the book, I was, I was trying to find the, the right paragraph to get the name, but, but you'll remember it, that there was one soap opera that uh, after the main character, a young girl, uh, became a successful, I think it was entrepreneur, the number of women using sewing machines in the country yes. escalated, yes. right? That, that yes. once, once we have this role model, you call them both um, uh, trendsetters and, and, and first movers, right? Once you have these characters, either fictitious or real, who defy the expectations, it then can influence the, the behaviors to give people not just the courage to change, that's a very American way of, of describing it, but also understanding that the reference network is going to be okay with it. 
Absolutely. The, the, the soap opera was called Simplemente Maria, means right, Simply Mary. Right. <laughs> and uh, it was started in Peru, but uh, it became very popular across Latin America, Spanish-speaking countries. And again, it's a story of a very poor girl. It lasted years, by the way, of a very poor girl that, uh, you know, decides uh, uh, to go to uh, an evening school, uh, you know, to become, to, lo- to know, to learn how to sew. And uh, then, uh, you know, working hard, she can buy a sewing machine and uh, she starts, uh, you know, making money, uh, you know, has a job and her life changes completely, etc. And as you said, this led to an increase, an enormous number of people buying sewing machines and starting, you know, looking for jobs, wanting to have a job, wanting to go to evening school if they have a job during the day and so on and so forth. So it's very, very important. But I want to add a philosophical point. When Rousseau wrote La Nouvelle Eloise, I read some very interesting articles about that. You know, it became a very popular book in Europe. Of course, it was a popular book among certain people, not everybody, because not everybody could afford a book. And this is the 18th century. This is this is yes. this is the late 1700s. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, French philosopher. Sorry, go on. And um, Rousseau kept all the letters that his reader wrote to him for years, you know, because what they were doing is very interesting. They they were reading La Nouvelle Eloise in groups. So there is this collective element that you see with soap operas. And they were discussing, you know, La Nouvelle Eloise and all these episodes and what was going on, reading and rereading with family and friends. And the letter says something very interesting. They say something like, I didn't know how to be a good husband and good father. I learned it through you. Thank you, Rousseau, <laughs> for teaching me. And they learn through this narrative. And very often we learn new behavior through a narrative. Now, the Nouvelle Louise, in some sense, was a soap opera <laughs> of that century, had a very, very important effect on people. Of course, on, you know, a smaller number of people, because few people could buy books. But those who could, you know, really were deeply influenced in their behavior, in their family behavior by Rousseau. This is very interesting, you know, to think of, because it's not that soap operas are, you know, the first time people are influenced by narrative. There are examples in the past, you know, in which people were very, very influenced and they change behavior. They change important behavior because of that narrative. And it's also interesting for 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 the philosophers uh, uh, who are following at home for sport that it's Rousseau because he was an awful human being. He had what six kids out of wedlock and dropped them off at the at at the at the yes. orphanage, right? So the idea that he's teaching anyone to be a father is one of the great ironies of philosophy. But I want to take a massive step back for a second because I realized as I was preparing for the show that. Your your book is is in a context that we actually haven't talked about in the ten years of the show. 
Um, you're doing, uh, 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 you're engaged in, among other things, uh, a project that's that's a part of what's called game theory. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about game theory and yes. what it is and how it informs human behavior. Uh, and why it's so philosophically important for doing this kind of work. What, what can philosophers, psychologists, cognitive scientists, others learn from games, and why are games essential to the idea of understanding how people choose what to do? Well, thank you. It's a very important question. Now, game theory deals... Uh, in a very formal and abstract way, if you will, with interdependent behavior. What does it mean, interdependent? That what I do in a game depends on what I think other people are doing and vice versa. Okay? And uh, the key concept of game theory is the concept of Nash equilibrium. And what is an equilibrium? It's just a situation when our reciprocal beliefs are correct. And so we don't need to change anything. You know, learning stops there. Now, what do we do with uh, game theory? In my case, particularly, I do a lot of experiments in which, uh, with social norms and game theory. I'll give you an example. A typical game that we use in experiment is uh, a trust game. A trust game is a game in which there is an investor that is given a certain amount of money, and uh, he can invest. I give you the simplest possible case. Either all the money, give the money to somebody else, and then I tell you what happens, or keep all the money. So there are two choices. And if this guy gives uh, all the money to this second person that is completely anonymous, he doesn't know this person, the money is multiplied by three by the experimenter. So the second person, the receiver, receives quite a big, big, big amount of money. And it can do two things. Again, this is the simplest possible case. Keep all the money to herself or give half back. And there is an important norm involved here, and it's a norm of reciprocity. If you receive money from, let's call him the trustor or the investor, typically you would reciprocate, you know, give him back something. And uh, so we want to measure how basically giving people different information, changing their expectations, and so on and so forth, uh, really changes behavior. You know, so we use these games that are very, very simplified real life situation because certainly in real life there is a lot of trusting and reciprocating, yes or no, and so on and so forth. But we want to see in the most abstract situation what people do, and if we modify their information and then modify their expectations. What happens? Will they change their behavior or not? What's going to happen? And um, to give you a short answer, yes, the behavior changes. <laughs> so when, when you modify people's expectation, behavior changes in significant ways, for the worse sometimes. Right. So so to connect the dots, right, you have this person who has some money and and he or she knows that – 
if if I'll say he just just for the sake of it, yeah, yeah. If he gives this money to this other person, that person may give more money back or not give any money back. But if they right. don't act. They, if they keep the money, they they get to keep all the money. But there's a risk and a chance. Since so they have to make this judgment, it's a game. They have to Correct. predict how the how the unknown person is going to ask. And this, of course, is a simplified version of exactly what's happening with child brides, with cutting. Right? If you don't cut your daughter, you have to predict whether someone will marry her. If you let your your, your child Correct. grow to be 18 or 25 and marry, you have to, yes. in the example you used before, um, predict whether or not she will be raped or, or something along those lines. These are obviously very extreme examples. But part of the reason why social norms come out of game theory is that all of our behaviors, all of our expectations are based on how we think the reference network uh, will behave. But as you talked about pluralistic ignorance, it's a game because we think we know what they believe, but we don't actually know what they believe. So we're we're, we're, uh, we're working on... Well, sometimes we do. Sometimes we do. Sometimes people, you know, very transparently talk about that. But sometimes they don't. And, uh, you know, it depends on the situation, but certainly you always have to predict, especially in the case in which you decide, I am sending my daughter to school, okay, right. until she's 18. And then uh, your example, you mentioned it, I have to predict, will she find a husband eventually? This is a very important prediction because you are playing with the life of a person. Right. And... Uh, you know, sometimes people can predict, but sometimes people cannot predict. And uh, it's an interesting question. And again, when we do our measurement, etc., we, among other things, look at people's predictions, you know, because their predictions drive their behavior. So, so two related questions and, and the the basic question is how often are people right but but the question i want to ask <laughs> is um I, I guess i'll ask it this way is there a difference between how often people are right in we'll say uh, democratic liberal countries where there is a <laughs> civil society where people are talking yeah. and writing op-eds yeah. and, 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 and engaging in public politics and non-democratic or, or non-liberal democracies may be developing countries, uh, the, the, the places you probably end up working with in UNICEF and, and, and things like that. Is there a difference in pluralistic ignorance and in, and in how informed people actually are in those models, or does it end up being a wash? It's a very interesting question. Um, you know, uh, sometimes uh, if I think of child marriage, uh, you know, there is an overestimation actually of the probability of the young girl being raped or getting pregnant out of wedlock, etc. So they have very high probabilities for events that are very low probability. So there is an overestimation very often. But let's go back to our democratic modern societies. Uh, do people have... Uh, through information, well, we are full of fake news and of fake information and crazy information. Think of the Novax people or think of the people who believe that the earth is flat. 
Okay, and uh, what I find very interesting in our society is the is, uh, easy availability of all sorts of information. So if I am inclined to be a Novax person, I go on the Internet and I can find all sorts of information supporting my view and vice versa. So what I think, uh, you know, uh, I may think this is completely false, uh, etc. But it's very interesting uh, that, uh, you know, we are all, all of us, myself, yourself included, prey to a confirmation bias. So what happens is uh, when we receive information, we tend uh, to give more weight to information that support our belief and conviction and underweight information that uh, rejects basically our beliefs or make us doubts at least about our beliefs. This is, this is human, this is a common bias. Now the problem in our society, we have so much information and sometimes people have no way to distinguish really fake information from good information. What's a good medical journal? What's a really bad medical journal? Very few people know that, uh, uh, you know, The Lancet is a top journal and other journals are not as good, okay? And the criteria for accepting a paper are very high on certain journals and very low on others. And uh, many people don't know that. And so they go and look for articles in so-called expert journals that are completely bogus. And uh, what is happening is, uh, and is worrying to me, is there is an incredible polarization of opinions, exactly because of the confirmation bias, because we look, we try to look at information that confirms our prior opinions. You know, there is an incredible polarization and people don't talk to each other anymore. So this is, uh, this is very serious. Okay, so in very more primitive, let's, put in inverted commas, less modern societies, there may be less polarization, okay? And we may say, oh, there is uh, overestimation or underestimation of certain events, but in our society is probably even worse because there is this incredible polarization and uh, incredible use and misuse of information that people make. You know, I, I, I think about um, the comment you made when you started answering about how there may be an overestimation of risk uh, in terms of yes. uh, rape in school. And I think, well, you know, people have been telling me for years that actually the school shooting statistics suggest that the number of school shootings are going down, not up. <laughs> and I can't believe that. And I, like many people of my generation, are right. plagued by the, by the story of Elizabeth Smart, right? Every time my daughter's window is open, I'm terrified, which is ridiculous, right? It's completely ridiculous. But and so so we are all guilty, regardless of the culture, of holding on to these stories and holding on to these fears. And right. so I guess that's one of the reasons why the work is right. And, and and as we close, I guess I'll ask I'll ask about in this way, your work is both universal and particular at the same time, right? You're, you're, you're trying to make universal claims about human behavior, about uh, risk assessment, about games, about all that. But at the same time, it has to be contextual because social norms 
are local, right? <laughs> yes. So how do you do that? As a philosopher, I, I, I guess this will be the last question, although I notoriously lie and ask follow-up questions. But um, uh, how do you do that as a philosopher? How do you balance the universal sort of claims about human nature and tendencies with the local context and information that is relevant in particular to your consulting work, but also your overall research? Well, it's uh, not difficult to balance uh, because uh, the skeletal structure, the uh, measurement of uh, all sorts of beliefs and social expectations uh, and the causal analysis is the same. What, uh, you know, this is a skeletal, uh, you know, part but then there are the muscle and flesh, <laughs> which is the That's local perfect. culture. And uh, we marry the two. So the skeletal is what guides me in, uh, uh, you know, deciding what to ask, etc. But uh, the flesh and, <laughs> you know, and muscles, if you will, is uh, an analysis of uh, the local culture. For I give you a very quick example. Before I construct a survey, and again, I know exactly the skeleton, what, what sort of question I need to ask, but the content of the question is determined by what we do as focus groups. So I talk to the people locally, and I try to understand, uh, you know, what are their important beliefs, uh, you know, what they feel about certain behavior, what their emotional responses are, and so on and so forth. And this leads me to, uh, you know, to ask, you know, in the survey questions that are related to what they think about a certain problem. But the skeleton is the same. It's always measuring, uh, you know, factual normative beliefs, uh, social expectation, analyzing causality, etc. is the same. The, the content, the specific content, is very local. And there is, uh, you know, no conflict between the two. Do they trust you? When you talk to the locals, can you talk yourself? I mean, assume, you know, linguistic problems aside, do you have to get locals to talk to the other locals? Absolutely. How, how much do you use that filter? How, how much do you rely on the trust of, of locals to gather the information? And, and, and how, does, how does that work? I guess that's is, a million question. dollar question. <laughs> 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 and uh, these uh, part, big part of my work is uh, to uh, basically choose local companies. Often is a local NGO. For example, when I do, um, you know, uh, trials, but uh, even when I do the survey, when I do the survey, I have to hire a reputable company in the nation where I do that that is experienced in the area where I do the survey. Then I train the surveyors. For example, I go to India. I went many times to train the people who do the survey in the area where I did Bihar and Tamil Nadu. I train them. Then we do random checks, okay? Uh, we go down in the villages, let's say, and see what they are doing. And uh, typically, the, the company will hire, okay, 
surveyors that are familiar with the population. So it's very, very important. And in many cases, women will be asked by other women, men by men, because women will not be comfortable answering questions posed by a man, even if they know the man, and vice versa. And so uh, it is the big, the biggest job is preparing a survey, finding a good survey company, training the surveyors, and randomized control in the field to see that everything goes well. So this is a big chunk. People don't see that. They think, oh, you prepare the survey. <laughs> no. <laughs> there is this important job that you have to do, you know, in the middle, basically. Well, I am exhausted just hearing about it. And, and, and it's, a, it's a great example for all of our listeners to see all of the ways in which philosophy um, can be applied, can be practical, and right. the ways in which the philosophical approach informs social science and and all sorts of information that has profound real-world effects. So, Christina, thank you so much for joining us on why this has really been fascinating. Thank you so much. Uh, it was a pleasure to answer your questions. You have been listening to Christina Bicchieri and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life, and I will be back with a few thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking with Christina Bicchieri about social norms. Human interaction can be thought of as a game, right? We have predictions about the future. We face risks. We want to have the best result, but we don't always know what to do to get that. Social norms tell us what to do in order to get the most likely result. But what happens if we have to change those social norms? What happens if we marry off young women too young or we engage in cutting or all sorts of other things that you can imagine like fighting in the United States, like being rude to one another, like cutting the cake in an incorrect way? Social norms are incredibly hard to change. And so the philosopher asks – what is a social norm? How do we identify it? How do we measure it? What makes it good and bad? And then, only then, how do we change it? That's what Christina is trying to do. And she has one foot in the theoretical world and one foot in the practical world. She engages in this fairly technical but often accessible research that has models and and charts and, and talks about uh, rationality and all these sorts of things. Her book, Norms in the Wild, I recommend that you read it. 
it is easily understandable. It can get analytic at times and technical, but I think most of our readers would get it. And at the same time, she goes to India and she goes to the Sudan and she works with the United Nations and UNICEF to try to make the world a better place. So few philosophers do that. They do that for a variety of reasons, or I should say they don't do that for a variety of reasons, but one of which is the moment you take the theoretical and apply it, it becomes infinitely more complicated. We can take the idea of social norms and play a game in a laboratory, and it will tell us about human nature, natural human tendencies, but once we apply it locally, the variables are so immense, the complexities are so abstract that it becomes infinitely more problematic. That is what she's trying to do, and that is what we are trying to articulate today. What does it mean to ask about social norms abstractly and practically, and what are the examples that we can use to see how it succeeds and how it fails? That was the goal of today's conversation, and as always, it was complicated, but in the end, I think, and I hope you did, it made a lot of sense and helped me understand things about the world that I didn't get before. You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Thank you for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzflutewinestein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>